Hey y'all, welcome to the Jefferson College Podcast. We're so glad y'all are here listening with us. We are the college ministry at Jefferson Baptist Church, and each week we'll post a sermon from our college worship service. Here's this week's sermon. Good evening, guys. Hope y'all are doing well tonight. Um, I'm super excited tonight as we continue our study through the Minor Prophets. Um, We're looking at restoring brokenness, right? Restoring broken people back to himself. That's what God continues to do and continues to reveal to us in the Minor Prophets. Today we're going to be looking at the prophet Hosea. The prophet Hosea. If you want to turn there, you can. um, And we'll get to the text here in a minute. In this book, we're looking at how God restores the unfaithful. How he restores the unfaithful back to himself because we know that he is faithful, yet his people often are not. I don't know about y'all, but anybody that's ever been in a relationship in the room, um, I think one of the worst things, this is my opinion, I think one of the worst things that could happen to you in a relationship is for someone to cheat on you, right? Sure, there are other things could happen that could be worse than that, but I think one of the worst things that could happen is that someone cheats on you. Because if someone cheats on you, that means they don't think you were enough for them. They abandoned your trust. They say they are not worthy of my faithfulness. Essentially, they're saying that you are not worth it. This other person is worth losing my relationship with you over. So most times when this happens in a relationship, the relationship ends. Sometimes it's reconciled, right? Um, that definitely does happen. Um, there, there is definitely... Uh, a aspect of people that say, yes, let's, let's try this again. Um, it could have been a mistake. It could have, you know, just been bad judgment, whatever the case. All right, let's say, so you're with me. We're in this relationship, and we say, for the second time, this person cheats on you. Man, that hurts so much worse, right? Like, you're like, yeah, the first time it, it happened, um, and it wasn't good, right? Like, it was very painful. It was hard to get through. But the second time, like, this person did it on purpose, right? It was an intentional act. Like, it doesn't accidentally happen twice. Let's say somehow um, that you're a better person than I might be, and you say, okay, let's try it round three, right? Let's reconcile this relationship. Let's bring it back together once again. And let's, let's, let's try to work this thing out. And then the third time y'all are together, it happens again. That same person cheats on you once more. I don't know about you, but if I were in this relationship, I would be hurting. I would be broken. I would say this relationship is beyond repair. And yet, as we look in the book of Hosea, this is the illustration that God uses for his relationship with his people. He continually forgives his people even though they continually are unfaithful. They are adulterers. And they cheat on him with other gods, with other things. And yet, he says, we can make this work. We can come back together again. As we look through this book, I just kind of want to give you all the theme of this book. Um, We're definitely not going to be able to cover the whole thing tonight. 
Um, we're going to try to cover as much as we can in the first three chapters, which kind of give us a jumping point um, for the rest of the book. But just the overall theme of the book is that while Israel unfa- is unfaithful and obstinate, that is not enough to exhaust God's redeeming love that outstrips the human capacity to comprehend. Israel's unfaithful and obstinacy are not enough for God to let go of them. And this doesn't make sense to us. And that's how, God, how much God loves us. And as we study this passage of Scripture, I hope you can see that tonight. That God is faithful to us even in our unfaithfulness. So in chapter 1, I'm just going to summarize it um, to give us some time to get deeper into chapter 2 and 3. Um, we see God call Hosea. He says, Hosea, go and marry a, a wife of whoredom, a, a promiscuous wife. Most people don't necessarily agree on what this exactly means. We don't know if, if Gomer, his wife, was a, a prostitute or she was promiscuous before the marriage. We often think not. Um, we often think that she just had that tendency and that this wife was going to be promiscuous. This wife was going to be a wife of whoredom, but she necessarily wasn't already because it wouldn't necessarily make sense for Hosea, a prophet of God, to marry someone who is who's just emits sin already. So, We think that Gomer doesn't commit this sin, commit this adultery until after she's already married, right? Like this is not necessarily what she was doing all along, but it is a sin that she is going to face. So Hosea marries Gomer. He marries her um, and and Gomer gets pregnant with his kid. Um, So Hosea has his kid, his name's Jezreel, and that's their first child. And as we continue in chapter one, we also see that Gomer gets pregnant again. But at the second time that, home, that Gomer gets pregnant, if you read in the text, it doesn't say that it was Hosea's child anymore. And we can definitely tell that Hosea doesn't think it's his child anymore because he names her No Mercy. Obviously, this is the English translation of the Hebrew word that means no mercy, but her name literally meant no mercy. And then the third child we see, Hosea gets pregnant, or excuse me, Gomer gets pregnant once again, not to Hosea. And this third child, Hosea has, has lost all hope, right? He recognizes for sure, if he didn't already know already, that this third child was not his. And he names him not my Gomer was promiscuous. She was an adulteress. She left Hosea's faithfulness and was impregnated by at least one other man, probably two other men, and stayed married to Hosea. And as we go through this text, I want us to understand one thing that's really, really important. As we read through these three chapters, we have to recognize that this life, Hosea and Gomer, is an illustration of God's relationship with Israel. So God and Hosea are essentially playing the same character here. They're faithful men. And then we have Gomer and Israel playing the same character, and they are unfaithful, right? They're adulterers. They're adulteresses. As we read through the text, there's going to be kind of some flipping back and forth um, between the two 
um, illustrations, right? Uh, sometimes we're talking from the Lord. Sometimes we're talking from Hosea. Sometimes we're talking to Gomer. Sometimes we're talking to Israel. But as we read through, we just have to understand that Gomer and Israel, same person, right? Same idea there. Gomer's unfaithfulness is Israel's unfaithfulness as well. So as we read through the text, keep that in mind, because otherwise it could get a little confusing. So what's said to Gomer, I'm just saying it again to clear things up, is also said to Israel and vice versa. So if something's addressed to Israel, it's addressed to Gomer. If something's addressed to Gomer, it's also addressed to Israel. We good? We got that? Good. So let's pick up in chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. Say to your brothers, you are my people. And to your sisters, you have received mercy. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. That she put away from her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns. I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her path. She shall pursue her lovers but not overtake them. And she shall seek them but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go. And return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold for which they used for Baal. So as we go through this text, um, we're going to take a little bit of a different approach than normal. But as we go through this text, we're going to look at Lies that lead to unfaithfulness. We're going to look at three lies that lead to unfaithfulness in the life of Gomer and Israel. And then we're also going to look at three truths that lead to faithfulness. So the first thing we're going to do is look at these lies that lead to unfaithfulness so that we might overcome them and not succumb to unfaithfulness in our own lives. The first thing that we see in this text, and the first thing that we see all throughout the Old Testament in the unfaithfulness of Israel, is that other things are an option. This is a lie that leads to unfaithfulness. Other things are an option. The people of Israel, just like Gomer, they set themselves up for failure. If we go and read through the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, we see over and over again, as Moses is instilling and establishing the law to the people, he says, as you go into the promised land, as you go into the land where there's Canaanites who do idol worship, as you go and do this, you have to remove all of them. You have to remove all of the people of the land that do not come to know Yahweh, that do not come to know God. Because if you don't, what will happen is they will be intermingled amongst you. And they will lead you to unfaithfulness. 
We see this all throughout Scripture. Uh, Deuteronomy handles this a bunch as well. But instead of going in there and removing all idols, removing all temptations, removing the people that had those beliefs, removing the temples and the high places, instead of doing that, Israel let some of them stick around. Israel did not, was not obedient to God's command on their lives. And because they weren't obedient, they left the door open. They left the door open for sin to re-enter their lives and idolatry to re-enter their lives because idolatry was an option for them. And just like for Gomer, she never said, it is only Hosea. She saw other men as an option for her. So when she got bored or when she got tired or whatever she got, she went to other lovers. I don't know about y'all, but me personally, like I'm a huge fan of sweets. Like I have a huge sweet tooth. I love dessert. It's my favorite part of the meal, right? And like my all-time favorite dessert, it's a chocolate chip cookie. Like it's 100% a chocolate chip cookie. Like if I could have any dessert in the world for the rest of my life, it would be that cookie. Because I know that I'm going to enjoy it, right? Like I know that it's going to do what it wants, like what I want it for it to do and satisfy me in that aspect, right? My issue is not that I know what the best choice is for me. My issue is when I go to weddings or baby showers or wedding showers or graduation parties, whatever, and they have multiple desserts on the table. Right? Like, there's not just a chocolate chip cookie, but instead they put in front of you this really good-looking brownie. They also have these lemon squares that you're like, that could be really, really good. They have this slice of cake, you're like, man, it could be the most delicious piece of cake I've ever eaten. They have ice cream. They have all of these different options. And it's a really bad thing for me. Because even though I know the chocolate chip cookie is the way to go, right? Even though I know that's my favorite thing. When I see the other options, I'm tempted. And I have to say, man, what if that's the best brownie I'll ever eat? What if that's the fudgiest brownie I'll ever eat? I got to try a piece. Man, what if that cake is life-changing, right? Like it's moist, it has good flavor, it has a great icing. What if that's the cake that I've been missing? What if that lemon square is really just the best dessert out there, but everyone looks down upon it? Maybe that's the thing that I've been missing. And while this is a silly example, we see all throughout Scripture and all throughout our lives even, that when the options are on the table, we tend to go towards the options. Even though we know what the best choice is. Even though I know the chocolate chip cookie is always going to be the best for me, unless it's just bad. I will end up tasting other things if they're on the table. So in our own lives... As we come back to the text, we recognize that we can't leave things on the table. That we can't leave sin and temptation in our life and just say, no, I'm not going to go into it. I'm not going to fall into temptation. 
Because when we leave it on the table, we can always turn back to it whenever we get tired of the one true God. Or whenever we think He isn't fulfilling us. Or whenever we convince ourselves or the devil convinces us that we need something else. If the options are on the table, we're going to take part in them. Just like Gomer did with her other lovers. Just like Israel did with other idols. We need to remove all temptations that we can. Because if they remain, we will often be tempted to try them. The second thing we see in this text is that is a lie that leads to unfaithfulness. Is that other things will fulfill you. Let's look at verse 5. It says, For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Verse 5 shows us the misguided thoughts of Gomer and Israel. It's that these other things, these other lovers will fulfill her. If we just go over here, we're going to be fulfilled. This is a lie that I think we all struggle with so much. While with Gomer, it was food and water, it was grain, it was all of these things. That if she had a relationship with these other lovers, then she would be good. right? She would be provided for, she would be fulfilled. The issue with the thought is we can do that our whole lives. Because just like Gomer, we often think that if we can just do this, then we will be fulfilled. If we are just in a relationship, then we'll be fulfilled. If we just get this grade on a test, then we will be fulfilled. If we just get this internship, then we will be fulfilled. If we just have this part, this relationship, this sexual aspect of our relationship, then we will be fulfilled. If we just move to this city, or if we just, you get the idea, right? If we continually look for the future, if we continually say, I am not content where I'm at, I'm going to find contentment next. Guys, the truth is we're never going to find contentment where we're not, if we're not content where we are. Because there's only one thing that can fulfill us, and it sure isn't these other things. It's God alone. Because God is the only one who can fulfill and sustain us. The third lie that we see in this text is that other things do fulfill you. So this is very similar to the last lie, right? But instead of being a future tense like the last one was, this one is a past tense, like I've already committed the unfaithfulness. I've already committed the sin, and they did fulfill me. So I have a question for everybody in the room. Does anyone in here use chapstick? Handful. I don't, um, just honestly, I don't use chapstick. Um, It's not necessarily because of what I'm about to tell you, um, but that definitely has hindered me from using it even more so, right? So there's an issue with chapstick, right? It, it, the idea and the design of it is to, you know, make your lips not dry, right? Um, to make your lips not crack, stuff like that. The issue with chapstick is that it does two things to your body. 
The first thing is it sends sensors and it blocks nerve cells to your head that say, hey, go and fix the issue. Because in the mind, like, there's not an issue. The chapstick has kind of like put a surface level, surface level Band-Aid on it. So your mind doesn't say, go and fix this. Go and fix the dry lips. Go and fix the dead cells. The second thing that chapstick does is as it evaporates, as it like dries up from your lips, it actually pulls moisture from your lips when it does that. So not only does it block the mind from sending new cells and for you to be building uh, new cells on your lips so you're not dry, so they're not cracked, but it also dries out your lips even more. That's why if you ever get in the habit of using chapstick, um, like I've been before, I'm not now, but like the more you use chapstick, the more you need it. And I know all of you in the room are like, man, this is not okay. I love my chapstick, all this stuff. But guys, this is just how it works. Like it's scientific. You can look it up. You don't have to trust me. I'm not a doctor, but there is other people that are. um, And this is what they say. Unless you get some really, really good chapstick, right? Like really expensive chapstick then some of that will, it has different ingredients, so it doesn't dry out your lips as much. But as we apply chapstick, our thought is that it fulfills us. Our thought is that it fixes the need that we have. That it satisfies the craving that we have to not have dry lips anymore, right? But once you get off chapstick, you stop using chapstick, right? Then you'll realize your lips aren't as dry. Because the thing that you thought was fulfilling and sustaining you was actually making the problem worse. And in the same way, that's exactly what sin does to us. That's exactly what lie that Gomer believed. She thought it was her lovers that gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, and lavished upon her the silver and the gold. She thought it was her lovers that were providing that for her. But she was wrong. Because the truth is, it was just a temporary fix. And this is the deadly cycle of unfaithfulness. Once we practice unfaithfulness, we think that it did in fact fulfill my needs. That sin that we leaned into. Whatever it might be, we think that it fulfills my needs. But it's just a lie in our heads. It's just a misconception that brings us back to unfaithfulness. Because the truth is, for Gomer and for us, the only thing that unfaithfulness does is tear us away from the thing that truly can fulfill us. Practicing sin just takes us away from the Father and being in a proper fellowship with Him. And Hosea the whole time was supplying for Gomer. He was a faithful husband. He was everything that Gomer needed, yet Gomer thought that other things would fulfill her. And once she took part, she thought they did fulfill her.
And in verse 13, I know we haven't read it yet, we see that the thought of other things, whether it be jewelry, silver, and gold, all of those things, what it did for Israel and what it did for Gomer, is it led them to forget the one who provided them in the first place. They thought it was their unfaithfulness that led them to these things. It's their unfaithfulness that led them to blessings. And this is the greatest danger that we have in our lives, is that unfaithfulness will help us forget who God truly is. Because God is faithful and He is the one who can provide for us. And He is the only one who has done something for us. Because not only were they practicing unfaithfulness, but they were using the things that they thought were provided by Baal and these other gods. And they were using it to worship them instead of God who actually provided for them. So in this passage so far, we've seen the three lies that Gomer and Israel believed that led them to unfaithfulness. Now, as we go through the rest of this text, we're going to look and see what truths lead us to remain faithful, that lead us to faithfulness. The first truth is that God is the only one who fulfills us. Let's look at verse 8. We're going to read 8 through 13 real quick. And it says, And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold which they used for Baal. Therefore I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season. And I will take away my wool and my flax which were there to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers. And no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish, them, punish her for the feast days of Baals, when she burned offerings to them and adorned, adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. In this passage, we see that it was God alone who fulfilled Israel and Gomer. It was God alone who fulfilled them. In verse 6 and 9, we see this, this, this passage of the text and this kind of uh, this structure of the text. We see these, there's three therefore statements in this chapter. The first one occurs in chapter 6 where God says, I'm going to put up a hedge of thorns so that Gomer cannot find her other lovers, so that Israel cannot find her other idols. And then in verse 9, he says, I'm going to take away all the things that they thought they received from Baal that actually came from me. So he's, he's putting up this hedge of protection so they don't find things. And he's also taking away which he was providing for them in the first place, which they thought came from somewhere else. And then in verse 8, what we see, though, and to see the issue and the lie that the Israelites and Gomer believed is that their lovers, their, their idols, their other gods were providing for them. This, this God of Baal, which we hear a lot about in the Old Testament, is this God of, of, of farming, right? He's this fruitful God of farming. He's the God of agri. He's the one who blesses them. He's the one who gives them abundance in their minds. There's these other gods who provided them fertility. They were pointing to all these other gods when it was truly God, the one true God that was providing for them. 
He is the one who provided and sustained them. He is the one who blessed them in their needs. And the people of Israel, instead of using this blessing to bring glory to God, they used it instead to worship Baal. They used the blessings of God to bring praise to a God that did nothing for them. Throughout scripture and throughout this passage, we see that only God alone can fulfill and sustain us. He is the one who blesses us. He is the one who can complete us. And knowing who God is means knowing his character, his love, his mercy, his justice, his righteousness for us. Because in these things is how he can sustain us. Because within each of us, there is a longing for something outside of this world. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in his book, The Weight of Glory. He said, our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. In this passage, in this, in this quote of C.S. Lewis, he's explaining that within each of us, there is this, this innate desire for something else. There's this innate desire, desire to be in a door that's always closed to us, that we've only seen from the outside. There's an innate desire for us to be reunited with something in the universe because we think it might complete us. Because this longing, this desire within us, the truth is it can only be fulfilled by the God who created us. Because the only one that can fulfill the God-sized hole in our heart is the God himself. And until we understand this, we are going to continue to seek to fill that hole, that longing within us. We're going to fulfill it with things of the world just like Israel and Gomer did. And we, like Gomer and Israel, often, we often seek to fulfill ourselves with the things of the world, whether it be sex, whether it be success, whether it be money, whether it be relationships, whether it be good grades, all these things that I've already mentioned. Those things will never fulfill us. Because God has created us to be in a proper relationship with Him. And if we're not in a proper relationship with Him, we are not going to be fulfilled. If we're seeking fulfillment elsewhere, we are never going to be fulfilled because it's God alone that can fulfill us. We must turn and trust the only one that can sustain us and fulfill us. And that's God. The second thing we see in this text is that God remains faithful. God remains faithful. So in verse 14, we're going to read here in a second, we see the third therefore of the text. And this therefore, while the other two gave what God was going to do to, to punish them, to judge them for their sin, this therefore tells us why he was doing those things. So let's read the text. It says, therefore, behold, I will allure her. And bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her, vine, her vineyards and make the valley of Accor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in the day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. 
and I will make for them a covenant on the day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and the war from the land, and I will make you lay down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. As I said, verse 14, it introduced this third therefore statement. This therefore tells us why he was removing the blessings, why he was putting up the hedge of thorns around Israel. It was to punish them, yes, but it wasn't just to punish them. It was to restore these unfaithful people back to himself. Because he knew that if they continued to worship Baal, who they thought provided for them, and if he kept providing for them, they were going to continue to worship Baal. But if he removes his hand, if he not stops providing for them the things that they think come from another God, then that other God will be powerless. That other God will have no control over their lives because they will recognize that they were worshiping the wrong God all along. God was trying to turn these people back to himself. And in verse 14 through 20 that we just read, we see that God is going to provide for them once again. Even though they were perpetual adulterers, he is going to woo Israel back to himself. He's going to pursue Israel again, even though she continues to be unfaithful to him. He's going to remind them of who he is and bring them back to himself. In this passage, we see the Lord recovering and reestablishing a covenant with his people. At the end of this, this section that I just read, we see that God is going to betroth them to himself. He was going to pursue Israel and betroth her once again. This betrothal, it's kind of like our modern day version of engagement. Um, this is basically like the, the covenant you make leading up to marriage. Um, it's one of those things that's like marriage, but not necessarily but the closest thing we can get to is our idea of engagement. Right, so what God is saying here is he's going to betroth Israel back to himself. And in that process of betrothal, there's always a bride price. Like the groom had to go to the father of the bride and say, this is what I'm going to pay for your daughter. This is what I'm going to pay for your daughter. Because she was worth something. She was worth a lot. So what God says in this last statement of saying, I'm going to betroth you back to myself. He is saying, you Israel are worth it. I'm going to pay for you. Even though you deserve nothing. You deserve nothing and you really aren't worthy of anything. God sees them as worthy of his love of his steadfast faithfulness, of his mercy, of his justice, of his righteousness, he says, I will betroth you again. The Lord is willing to buy back his people because of who he is and because of his faithfulness. He wants them to remember and to know who the Lord is so they, they don't forget once again.
Because when we truly, like the people of Israel, when they truly recognize God's faithfulness for them, they are going to remain faithful. Because God is faithful even amidst their unfaithfulness over and over again. So when we remember God's faithfulness amidst our temptation, amidst our sin, we need to go back to Him and not run from Him. Because He is faithful to His children. And He is better than that sin that we're living in. The last truth that leads us to faithfulness in this passage is that God redeems us. God redeems us. We're going to skip a few verses, um, and we're going to go to chapter 3. And at the end of those verses, all we really see there is that the Lord is going to continue to, to return uh, the blessings that he took away from the people, right? So he's going to betroth them to himself, and then he's going to bless them with the grains and the oil and all these things. He's actually going to rename his people, right? Just like Hosea named his child No Mercy, God is going to take back that name and say, I will have mercy on no mercy. And, and the son that Hosea had named Not My People, he's going to rename them, You Are My People. And in turn, Israel will turn back and say, you are my God. They will know God once again. In chapter 3, we're returning back to the narrative. In chapter 2, it was kind of like this trial um, that Hosea was holding and that God was holding for Israel, that Hosea was holding for Gomer. And in this trial, it's this, this accusation of, of adultery, right? Um, of, of Gomer breaking her promise, her covenant, her covenant to her husband. So he's pleading for her to return back to himself. But as we go into chapter 3, we get back to the narrative that we left in chapter 1. And it says, And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so I will also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. And afterwards, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. As we get to chapter 3, we see God telling Hosea to do one more thing. He says, go and buy back your wife who has loved another man. You go and pay for her. Because at this point in her life, Gomer has entered into some sort of slave market, some sort of slave trade. And she is at a very low point. Her other lovers have left her, obviously. And she is now not me. She's at a very dark place in her life. And just like the Lord loves the children of Israel that continually turns to other God, God is commanding Hosea to go and love his wife who continues to love other men. So Hosea went and he bought back his wife, which presumably ended, which was in some sort of slavery, as I just said. And God is asking Hosea to purchase back his wife, his wife whom he was faithful to. He had to go and pursue her. 
who was unfaithful, who was an adulteress. And what this passage shows us is just like Hosea, who went and paid for his wife, God himself is going to come and pay for his people. Hosea paid a small price for Gomer because she wasn't worth very much. But we as a people were worth the life and death of Jesus because God sent his son to pay for us, to pay the bride price for our lives. He came and lived a perfect life. He came and died a death that we deserve, that we deserve to pay for. He died that death to pay for our lives and for our sins. And then he rose again three days later to defeat death and sin forever. And all we had to do in the process, just like Hosea, or excuse me, just like Gomer, all we had to do was accept the gift. Because we didn't deserve it. We didn't deserve to be bought. We were unfaithful. We were sinful. Yet God loved us enough to pay for our whole lives. He loved us enough to give everything for us. And all we have to do is turn to him. Because this king, as we see at the end of this chapter in verse 4, we, or excuse me, verse 5, it says they're going to return to David their king. This is just pointing to Jesus our Savior. And this, this, this statement again, it, we said it a couple weeks ago in Amos. This statement hurts for this northern kingdom because they didn't accept the Davidic king. Yet God was being faithful to his covenant and his promise to send a Savior through the line of David. We have been paid for. We have been bought by the blood of Jesus. Guys, and all we have to do is place our faith in him. And if that doesn't lead us to faithfulness, if understanding what he did for us doesn't lead us to faithfulness, I don't know what will. Because God not only is faithful to his children, God is not only the one who fulfills and sustains us, God is the one who redeems us. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we are so grateful for your word. Lord, we pray that we would be faithful to you because, Lord, we know that you are faithful. Lord, amidst our sin, amidst our temptation, Lord, we lay that down at your feet so that we might know and come closer to you. That we might enter into a proper relationship with you. Lord, because we know that you are the only one who sustains us. You are the only one who provides for us. And Lord, you are the one who redeemed us. And Lord, we just pray that we would remain faithful to continue on and pass that message to everyone we come in contact. Lord, that we would be changed by the message of your, of your love for us and what you paid for us. Lord, we love you. And to your son's name I pray, amen.